0: All right, good morning. how's everyone? Good morning. Very good. Let's turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter eight. Now let's get the number of the uh, pew Bible or not seat Bible or whatever um, if you don't have a Bible is in the seats and all that page one thousand and five. I will read and in your pews or chairs and everything else is I shouldn't do this, but it's ESV in there, but I will read from the old NIV, sorry. It's just, it's a habit. My Bible's all marked up. If I lose this Bible, I'm in serious trouble. Uh, so follow along as we read from God's Word. We'll read Hebrews chapter 8. We'll come back to this in a, in a few moments. Um, we're in the middle of a section, <laughs> That's one of the challenges, right? As you look at Scripture, you're in the whole middle of a section. So he's concluding and then transitioning, but follow along as we read this glorious passage of Scripture that speaks of the Lord Jesus, right? Uh, In your bulletins, you have the title, Christ Alone. The full title, well, it's up there, isn't it? Uh, The Heart of the Reformation Reformation Sunday, we'll come back to that, is really Christ alone, and this is a great passage that speaks to Him being alone, Lord and Savior. So let's read Hebrews 8 and see what God's Word is saying to us today. The author says, the point of what we are saying is this, and so here's a kind of conclusion. We do have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, who serves in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle, set up by the Lord, not by man. Every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices, and so it was necessary for this one, also to have something to offer if he were on earth, he would not be a priest, for there are already men who offer the gifts prescribed by the law, a reference to the Levitical priests of the Old Testament. They serve at a sanctuary that is a copy and a shadow of what is in heaven. This is why Moses was warned when he was about to build the tabernacle, and this goes back to Exodus 25, see to it, the Lord says, that you make everything according to the pattern or the type shown you on the mountain. But the ministry Jesus has received is superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is a mediator is superior to the old one. It's founded on better promises for if there had been nothing wrong with the first covenant, no place would have been sought for another. But God found fault with the people and said, Here's a quotation from the prophet Jeremiah. The time is coming, declares the Lord. When I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, it will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they did not remain faithful to my covenant. They turned and I turned away from them, declares the Lord. But this... Is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God. They will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least to the greatest, for this four is very, very important. For I will forgive their wickedness. I, this is the Lord speaking, I will remember their sins no more. By calling this covenant new, God has made the first one obsolete. And what is obsolete in aging is disappearing. Now there's the Lord's, word to us a very very glorious passage focuses on christ and his work alone you need nothing more that'll be the point that's what the alone means when we speak of christ alone it is enough it is sufficient well let's pray and ask the lord to teach us from his word heavenly father thank you for your word thank you for your son our lord jesus He is your gift. You have given your Son, indeed, in the eternal plan of God. You, as our Father, in agreement with the Son and the Holy Spirit, have planned our salvation even before this world came to exist. And in creating this world, and in unfolding your plan in history, you have planned all things. You've sent your Son to be the only Redeemer, of us. And apart from him, there is no salvation, and with him we have everything that we need. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your provision. Thank you for the Lord Jesus. Thank you that in the history of the church, right, the gospel was in some many ways, many ways recaptured in the Reformation as they focused on many truths, But the truths that they were centrally about was your glory, your name, and the glory of the Lord Jesus. And so we pray that on this Reformation Sunday, that we would rejoice in him, that we would not leave here apart from faith and confidence in him and him alone. Help us to this end. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, October 31st. Why is this day important? Well, lots of reasons. We've already seen Braves or whatever. Uh, three reasons in the Wellham household. And the first reason isn't that big deal. Right? It's Halloween, right? So I can't, I can't forget this because every time I look out my window, so I've been on sabbatical at seminary and trying to write and do research and so on. Every day I look out, especially over the last month, I see skeletons good reminder of Halloween and maybe the corruption of it, but skeletons everywhere, right? Celebration of death, right? Well, that's Halloween, Also in the Wellham household is my dear wife's birthday. So she was born on October 31st as she grew up, and as we have celebrated that through our Raising of our children, it's always been a lousy birthday day, Because always the kids are trying to do candy and trick-or-treat and this kind of thing, and churches having trunk-or-treat or or whatever, and so she always gets shortchanged, but it is her birthday, and uh, we're glad for that. I'm glad for that, right? But, right, and not minimizing her birthday, (laughs) uh, it's also in the history of the church what we call Reformation Sunday, now, some of you may have not have heard of Reformation Sunday before, but Reformation Sunday is a reminder that 504 years ago, so October 31st, 1517, there was a monk, Augustinian monk, Martin Luther. Right? He was a professor, and uh, he thought that uh, he would do something very innocent He wrote up 95 theses, right? And he took those 95 theses and he went to the door of the University of Wittenberg and he nailed them on the door. This was just a common practice. He wanted to have discussion about these 95 theses. He was hoping that all the way to Rome, right? The church at this time was the Roman Catholic Church. He was hoping all the way to the Pope, he would just create a conversation, well, unbeknownst to him, he created a fire. Right? And by nailing those 95 theses to the door of Wittenberg University, it created a firestorm. And we go back to this day and say, this really was the spark that began what was known as the Protestant Reformation. Right? In the history of the church, right, there's been two major divisions that have occurred over time back around thousand, technically 1054 AD, right? There was a split between East and West, right? So if you hear of Eastern Orthodoxy and Greek Orthodoxy, that's where all of that took place. The church was unified up until that time. And then in the Western world that we live in, in 15, the 16th century, 1517, a split then took place between the Roman Catholic Church and then what we now know as the Protestant Church, and we are the heirs of that protestant reformation right so there's two great splits and we now live as a result of it right the reformation had to happen and even i think roman catholic people right scholars and so on realized the church was in trouble and this happens often throughout the history of the church right the church can see strong days and weaker days and this was a weaker day for the history of the church its leadership was not faithful and honoring to God. Nominal Christianity had spread all the way through Europe, right? And you have people going to the church. The church governed the whole society, but not much, right, personal saving faith in Christ. So people were hungry for the gospel. hundred or so years later, earlier, they had come out of the Black Plague. A lot of things going on at this period of time. And what sparked the Reformation, what sparked Luther was a man named Tetzel (laughs) who was selling indulgences, right? And he was trying to then say you could buy your way out of purgatory, right? So after death, you need to be purged, and you could then buy your way out. And Luther said, no, 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 right? He had rediscovered, as he's read the book of Romans, he rediscovered that, no, God saves. God provides a Redeemer. That Redeemer is enough. We don't have to add anything to His work. And so that's what called the church back to the truth of the gospel and out of the Reformation, right? I mean, this impacted the entire world. We can't even understand our country, the Western world, apart from the Reformation. I think one of the issues that came out of the Reformation was the translation of the Bible. Up until that time, it was just in Latin. Only certain people could read it. Luther translated into German, and even before that, Wycliffe in English. And the Bible that you have in your hands is largely due to that period of time where the Bible was then printed, it was translated, it was given to people. We also had, indeed, a recovery of God's Word, the centrality of the gospel, and a spillover effect to society. Now, none of these areas are perfect, none of these times in history. There's no golden age in history. But the Reformation was a crucial time, and it's right and fitting to remember it, and that's why we have a Reformation Sunday to give God thanks, to learn lessons from it, right? Uh, forget who has said that if you want to uh, not learn from history, you'll be doomed to repeat its mistakes, right? That's some of the challenge that we find in our own culture, right? They want to destroy history what's going to happen you'll just repeat its mistakes right so we want to learn from the past and learn what was central to the reformation which i've already given you the allusion to is christ alone christ alone his work is enough god in his provision of his son provides everything we need for our salvation right so two things we want to do today we're going to get to rome or hebrews 8 but first I just want to, because of learning lessons from the past, I want to just focus on, right, we don't always have this in our schools and so on, just something of what was the Reformation, right? Uh, What was that debate? Why did it occur? What lessons can we learn? Which then takes us to the centrality of it in terms of Christ alone. That is really what is at stake, right? And then turn to Hebrews 8, which is a beautiful passage that teaches us this central truth, this heart, right, is that Christ alone is enough, right? So that's what we want to do. So let's first look at the Reformation, and if you were to summarize it all down, right, what were the issues at stake in the 16th century, 1517? what were the two major issues that were there and are still with us today, right? The first issue was the issue of where is the authority found? Right? That's the first issue, right? Where's authority found? Out of the Reformation came famous Latin terms "solas." Right? "Solas" are mean the word Latin for alone, and the first sort of alone was "sola scriptura," scripture alone. And what was that all about? Roman Catholics believed in the scripture; they believed in the Bible, but what happened was they added to the Bible an authority to the church. Now the church has authority. The church has authority though as it is true to scripture, right? So what was happening was you had the role of the magisterium of the church, the leaders of the church, and they had the ability in the Roman Catholic teaching to be able to say their scripture plus our interpretation of it. And of course the reformers came and said no, 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 no. God has given us his word. His word is enough. The Spirit of God will lead His people to understand His Word. If there's anything that contradicts the Scripture, we need to not believe that. We need to reject that. We need to hold to Scripture alone. And, of course, the same lesson applies to us today. Right? This doesn't just show up in Catholics and Protestants. It shows up in our churches. Right? <laughs> right? Just think of all the debates today. What governs my life? Right? What is my authority? For most in our society, the authority is you. Right? You never want to admit that often, but I will determine what I think I should believe, what I should live, right? I will identify my own desires and so on. And the reformation teaching has to come back to us. God alone has authority, God alone speaks, His word is true, and all I need. For life and godliness and to rightly think about him is his word alone, right? That's a lesson that still must remain with us today. So that was the first issue of the Reformation. Where is the authority found? Has God said this in terms of his word and is it enough? Right? And the second issue, of course, is now tied to Christ. Roman Catholics and Protestants agreed on a lot, right? They're all part of a larger Christian tradition, aren't they? Particularly on such foundational issues as who God is, right? They all agreed on that, the doctrine of the Trinity. They affirmed the great creeds of the church, right? The person of Christ, the deity of Christ, and his humanity and his incarnation and so on. Yet, yet, the sufficiency of Christ's work began to be compromised. Now, what do we mean by sufficiency? Well, we mean, is Jesus enough? <laughs> Can I just say, raise my empty hands and say, all I need is nothing I bring to the table. I don't bring my own good works. I don't bring anything in myself. I simply believe in Him, trust in Him, rest in Him, and that is all I need to be right with God, right? And this is tied to the doctrine of justification. We read Romans 4. So what was the debate here was in the Roman Catholic view, they affirmed Jesus is the Lord. Jesus is God. He is God the Son. He is the only Savior. Right? All of that was held in common. Yet what you need is Christ plus. And it's the plus that was the problem. Right? So Jesus on the death of the cross, for instance, he paid for all of our sins in the past. He put all of my sins away, yet I presently sin. <laughs> so what do I do with my present sins? Well, I have faith in Christ. And then I need to have then new grace given to me through the church. And it's that through the church, which is the additional factor. Again, our churches are very important. But our churches do not mediate to you the grace of God. That comes directly by faith in Christ alone. And in the Roman Catholic view, we have what are known as the sacraments. So all the way from womb to tomb, if you want to say that, right? From birth to death. The whole view is, right, Christ has put away my past sins, but he must also now deal with my present sins and my future sins. And so when I baptize an infant, they are washed of their sins. As I come to the church, I am cleansed of my sins. And this is why in the Roman Catholic view, the doctrine of justification is not that God has declared us right before God because of Jesus alone. It's God is making us right. Those are two different things. There's a process I am becoming more right. <laughs> I am growing in grace as I come to the church. And the, the work of the church is now applied to the sacraments. And they say Christ has established all of that. But it's Christ plus receiving the sacraments. But the problem with this, right, is you've now added to Christ's work. And the Bible will say justification, which is God's declaration that we are right before God, is nothing to do with you. It has everything to do with Christ alone. And this is why in the Reformation, right, you have that sola, scripture alone, faith alone, but the faith alone is in Christ alone. And we receive God's grace alone, not through you, Not even through the church, but by coming directly to the Lord Jesus Christ. And why should that be a surprise? Shouldn't be because who's Jesus? Jesus is the Son of God from eternity. He's God the Son who has become human. Why would you think you could add anything to Him? (laughs) In His humanity, right, He lives His life for us. He obeys for us. He keeps what we don't keep, which is namely the law of God and the obedience to God, right? He does that perfectly. And so his perfect life in our faith in him is now given to us. It's called imputation, right? He is charged. His life is charged to us. We are declared to be right in him by faith in him. He obeyed for us. You didn't obey. And he is, not only in his humanity, the obedient one, but he is God the Son. He takes and remember, in Scripture, our sin is before God. How does a holy God forgive sinners? How does he say, um, "You are right. He doesn't grade in the curve. He doesn't overlook our sin. He must ultimately satisfy his own demand against us. Well, who can do that? Only God. He must be the divine son who pays for our sin. In his humanity, he represents us. And by our, and this is the important role of covenant, right? By faith in him, by coming into covenant relationship with him, all that he has done in his life, his death, his resurrection is now mine. So that I can say, he is my savior. He is my Lord. I don't have to bring anything to the table. I I can't bring anything to the table. He alone is Lord and Savior. And so in the Bible and also in the Reformation, there's a direct relationship that the believer has to Christ. And that direct relationship is very important. It's not indirect. In the Roman Catholic view, it's indirect. You have Christ, but you come through the church. No, 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 no. You come directly to God Himself in and through His Son, so there's no intermediary. He is the Savior. He is the Lord. He is the only one that we come to. And this is, again, a Reformation lesson that has to be applied to us today, right? Just as we make up all kinds of authorities, we then make ourselves the authority, so in salvation, we think we're good enough, We think that we can bring our own good works we can bring our own righteousness that christ is is yes he's important but we'll contribute something and scripture will say and the reformation will say and the lesson of the reformation is you can't contribute anything right if you think you can contribute something you have a too high view of yourself right you have too low a view of god you have too high a view of yourself and too low a view of the redeemer So all of these great truths, and that's what really the Reformation was about. That's why you have another soul of the Reformation, right? So you have Scripture alone, you have faith alone, which is in Christ alone. Christ alone, grace alone, and you also have to God's glory alone. Now, everybody in the history of the church has always said to God's glory alone. But uniquely in the Reformation, right? They recaptured, what we need to recapture is this universe is not about you. The importance of this world is the glory of God, right? He is center. He is the one who has made us for himself. We are the ones who have sinned against him. And our only hope is that he acts in grace. Grace is undeserved. He now gives a redeemer to us, and then he does it all. If that's not what happens, then we are without hope. But thank God that he has done that in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, these are the crucial, crucial issues of the Reformation, and that is why we celebrate Reformation Sunday, right? They are recapturing just simply biblical truths that must be held, and indeed, throughout the whole history of the church. The church has held these things. But it was brought back with new force, new understanding, and we then must continue to be heirs right, of the Reformation in these same areas that always are compromised always, right? Don't think that we live in our evangelical churches anything different. The authority of Scripture is under attack in our evangelical churches. That's why we're having a lesson on why the Bible, right? Uh, the sufficiency of Christ's work is under attack, right? The minimizing of the holiness of God and justice and elimination of final judge. All of these things are undercutting the very truth that God alone is God. He is holy and just. That we have no standing before Him apart from his provision of himself in the Lord Jesus Christ. Right? Now, the truth of, and now we'll come back to Hebrews 8, Right, the truth of Christ alone, right? which was so central to the Reformation, where do you find this truth in the Bible? And the answer is everywhere. Right? Properly understand all of the Old Testament, all the New Testament, everything teaches you God alone, God's glory alone and Christ alone Salvation is by grace, through faith, and the promises of God that we contribute nothing, right? All the way from Abraham learned that lesson uh, way back in the Old Testament. The Apostle Paul in our reading of Romans 4 teaches us that. So this truth of Christ alone is found everywhere in the Bible. But one great place is Hebrews 8. So go back to Hebrews 8, and here we see this truth of Christ alone just emphasized so powerfully In this book. Now, why the book of Hebrews, right? Well, this was a crucial Reformation book. Now, the whole Bible's a crucial Reformation book. (laughs) But the book of Hebrews, especially because if you understand anything about the book of Hebrews and you know that book, right, there's a lot of truths that are given into it, but the heart of the book of Hebrews is about the glory of Christ, right? The supremacy of Christ, the better nature of Christ, right? And the better nature of Christ, especially as our great high priest. And, of course, the idea of high priest, that doesn't sit well today, especially on Halloween, you may think of Wiccans and so on in terms of priests. But in terms of great high priest, high priest is the mediator. The high priest is the go-between. The high priest, especially in the Old Testament, was the one who would take the animals and offer them on behalf of the people for their sins. And this is how forgiveness of sins came about, right? And this is crucial to then how do we stand right before God. Well, the book of Hebrews is centered on, it's the most extensive book in the entire New Testament that gives you chapter after chapter after chapter unfolding for you the high priestly work of Christ. Without the book of Hebrews, we would be really lacking in this area. So this is God's contribution, right, uh, to understanding Christ's work in this way. And at the heart of it is Christ is enough, right? You don't need to add anything more to his work, right? So from the opening verses of Hebrews, and probably, uh, if you know something about the book, it's written to Jewish Christians probably, right? It's hard sometimes to tell. But probably the the audience were Christians who came out of the Old Testament, right? They were Jewish people. They had placed their faith in Christ, but they were beginning to slide. They were facing pressures from the outside world and internally... They were losing their confidence in the gospel. They were losing their confidence ultimately in Christ. They were maybe flirting with going back to the Old Testament. So that's why from the opening verses, the author begins. He doesn't even tell us who he is. He says, in the past, referring back to their Old Testament heritage, God spoke through the prophets, and he spoke in many ways, diverse manners, but... Now in the Son, the whole plan of God now has been to send the Son of God, the Son of God who brought the last days, is an Old Testament term, and all of God's promises to pass in Him. And what's He doing here? He's reminding them that all the Old Testament was pointing forward. All of the shadows of the old, all of the sacrifices of the old, all the priests of the old, all the covenants of the old were ultimately pointing forward to the coming of the Lord Jesus, and He's the one who brings all of God's plans and promises to pass, he's enough. That's the point that comes through. And as he then unfolds this, he will compare Christ to angels. That's chapter 1 and 2. He will compare him to Moses, right? Because he's very very important in the Old Testament. He'll compare him to Joshua in chapter 3 and 4. And then he spends most of his time, all the way from chapter 5 through 10, saying, Christ is greater than the Old Testament priests. Christ is greater than the Old Testament covenant. Christ is greater than the Old Testament sacrifices. All you need is Him, and Him alone. And that's where our chapter then comes, right? It's in the midst of a whole long discussion of chapter 5 through 10. Hebrews 8 is in the middle of it. And he's already established Old Testament priests are weak. (laughs) Purposely so, right? They were just shadows of what was to come in Christ. Old Testament sacrifices, chapter 9, were weak. They couldn't save you, but they pointed forward. And the Old Testament covenants did the same thing as well, right? So if you go to chapter 7, verse 23, it's in the midst of an argument, but you can see how he's building and he's now focusing on the glory of Christ. So look at just chapter 7, verse 23. He says, now there have been many of those priests, these are Old Testament priests, since death prevented them from continuing in office, but because Jesus lives forever. No Old Testament priest ever lived forever. But this Jesus lives forever. He has a permanent priesthood. So the emphasis here, again, is unlike these Old Testament priests, what he does is complete. It's permanent. It's eternal. There's nothing you can do to add to it. Therefore, he is able to save completely. Those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them, right? So he's already been building here of Christ as greater, greater than Old Testament priests. He is permanent. He is raised from the dead. He brings a full and complete salvation. And that's why he says in verse 26, such a high priest meets our need. What's our need? We're sinners before God. God's not going to overlook our sin now. What hope do we have? Well, this priest meets our need. He's holy. He's blameless. He's pure. He's set apart. Uh, Unlike other high priests, he doesn't need to offer sacrifices uh, day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He offers himself once. All of that is just laying down. This is before you get to chapter 8. He's laying down here, right? He's enough. Of course, we've already said why that's the case. He's God the Son. Why would you think you could add anything to God? Why would you think you could add anything to the one who's taken on our humanity and obeyed for us and so on? So he's already laid this down. And even look at verse 28 of chapter 7. The law appoints as high priests men who are weak. It's another way of saying useless. Now, in God's plan, that was purposeful. He was teaching these people to look forward. But those priests, if you thought that they could save you, they can't. But the oath, which came after the law, appointed the Son, who's made perfect forever. And now you come to verse one. The point of what we are saying is this: Now you see, there's a it's picking up conclusion here, right? So in chapter eight, you can look at this chapter in sort of three steps. Verse one to six is sort of bringing things to a summary of what he's already been teaching, and then he wants to go further by then speaking of the glorious covenant that the Son of God brought in His life and death and resurrection and so on, and then its application to us. So, verses 1 to 6, we see here His continuation. The point of what we are saying is this, and really the first couple verses really get the main point. We do have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. That first phrase sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven has already been picked up in chapter 7 and other places but what's the emphasis here well you have to know something about the old testament priests old testament priests levitical priests right lived and died and lived and died and they just kept passing on and they never as they went through their work particularly in the old testament the day of atonement the day of atonement once a year the high priest would go into the holy of holies and he would offer sacrifices for the nation, but there's something that high priest never, ever, ever, ever did. He never sat down. (laughs) And what does that signify? It signifies his work is not finished. His work is ongoing. And this was a way that ultimately God was teaching us, right? Any Old Testament Jew should have learned. They didn't. (laughs) They were often dense, like us, right? But they should have learned that the very repetitious nature of that Old Testament system, sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice, day of atonement, year after year after year, priests who lived and died, who lived and died, who lived and died, who lived and died, lived and died never sitting down, they should have said, you know what, we need something more. Right? And that's ultimately the more that Christ brings. And so we're told here that Christ sits down That's another way of saying his work is done. Right? You don't add anything more to it. And where does he sit down? He sits down at the right hand of God. This is a position of total authority. Right? It's God the Son. And he completes his work. And then verse 2 picks this up as well. Really 2 through 6 is just highlighting the old system. He serves in a sanctuary, the true tabernacle... Set up by the Lord, not by man. And then in verse 3, every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Well, he does this as well. He offers him ultimately himself. If he were on earth, he would be a priest. He wouldn't be a priest. There are already men who offer that prescribed by the law. They serve at the sanctuary. That's a copy of shadow that's in heaven. This is why Moses was warned. Build everything according to that which is on the mount. What's going on here, right? Well, basically, it's reminding the people that the entire Old Testament system was simply one huge object lesson, <laughs> one huge illustration that they were to look forward to something greater. That's what, it's, that's what it's all about, right? We can say much more about that, but just as the Old Testament priest looked forward to a greater priest, so the entire Old Testament tabernacle and temple, right? We're studying Samuel where David and then eventually Solomon build the temple. All of that was given as one huge object lesson, an object lesson that was to ultimately have those people look forward. We need a greater priest. We need a greater sacrifice. We need a greater covenant. We need a greater temple, right? a greater tabernacle. And when it says here that he serves in the true tabernacle, that's just simply a way of saying he serves in that which ultimately the Old Testament pointed forward to, right? So these verses here are kind of summary. They've already been unfolded from chapter 5, 7, and so on, and they're basically saying Jesus is enough. He's finished His work. He's completed it. It's done. It's total. The true tabernacle that He now offers Himself in is ultimately giving of Him as the one who lays down His life, who completes all of the Old Testament. Remember at his death where the temple curtain was rent in two? It's simply saying that whole system is now done, right? Because Christ has now come, right? And that's the point of these first verses. And then in verse 7, he makes the transition to now a covenant. So that in emphasizing Christ alone, Christ alone is the great high priest. His work is enough. And in that work, he now brings a whole new covenant relationship. That's the importance. In the scripture, covenant and priests are all tied together. Old Testament priests served under an old covenant. The new covenant priest, the Lord Jesus, serves and brings a new covenant. So verse 7 is a very, very important verse, especially for the Jewish person, because it's reminding them that even in the Old Testament, God was alerting them to something more to come. Read verse 7. It says, For if there had been nothing wrong with the first covenant, that's a reference to ultimately what Moses established and the priesthood and the tabernacle and the temple and so on. If there was nothing wrong with that covenant, no place would have been sought for another. That's just another way of saying, if you read your Old Testament properly, as you read your Old Testament, God establishes an entire covenant relationship with Israel and all the priests but then as you keep reading the Old Testament, God says, I'm going to make a new covenant. Well, if it's new, that's telling you the old is not enough. Right? If it was enough, you wouldn't need the new. You just say, keep going. Right? Just keep bringing new priests and just keep uh, the system as it is. And so the very fact that in the prophets, and this is what he'll quote in verse 8, the very fact that later in the prophets, and where do the prophets write? They write at the end of the Old Testament era, don't they? After all of this system is in place, the prophets come. God says to the prophets, there's coming a new covenant. <laughs> there's coming a new priest. And what should the Jewish person have been thinking? This old system is going to be done away with. That's what they should have been thinking. And that's the point here in verse 7. If there had been nothing wrong with the first, God wouldn't say, here's a new one. And then you have, in verse 8, the quotation from the Old Testament to prove his point. And this is what we want to finish here with and just look at this promise of a new covenant. Because the promise of a new covenant comes through the great high priest, right, the Lord Jesus. right. And this new covenant promise has within it, it's enough. <laughs> Christ's work is enough. right? So we read in verse 8, but God found fault with the people and said... And this is a quotation from Jeremiah the prophet. This is the longest quotation you have of the Old Testament in the Bible. So repeatedly, the New Testament quotes the Old Testament over and over and over again, especially this book. And here is the longest quotation. So obviously, it's signifying something really, really important here, isn't it? And this comes from Jeremiah 31. The time is coming, declares the Lord. So in Jeremiah, it's looking to the future from these people, the Christians here, now they're looking at the past, right? What the prophets look forward to now has come in Christ, and the author's reminding them, Jesus brought that, right? Jesus has brought that to pass. So the Old Testament looks forward, the time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah, and he's very clear, it's not like the old one, right? Now that's not to say Again, that the priests weren't important and the covenants weren't important. Part of God's plan was to point forward, right? To look forward. So it's not going to be like the covenant I made with our forefathers. When I took them out of the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they did not remain faithful to my covenant, I turned away from them. This is the covenant. And, of course, you can't have the covenant without the covenant priest, right? Without the covenant mediator, without the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the covenant I will make to the house of Israel, I will put my laws in their minds. I'll write it on their hearts. That's Old Testament language for I'm going to take out their hearts of stone. (laughs) I'm going to give them new hearts. I'm going to give them so that they believe and they walk and they're rightly related to me. I'm going to put my law on their minds. I'm going to write it on their hearts. I'll be their God. They'll be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a brother saying, know the Lord. They'll all know me. It speaks of This new covenant is going to bring such transformation that those who are in that covenant will have new hearts, will know God, will be transformed. They'll all know me from least to greatest. right? No matter who's in that covenant, they'll all know four. And verse 12 becomes the bottom line of this covenant. I will forgive their wickedness, I will remember their sins no more. Now, you can't make sense of that apart from the Old Testament, right? God, in the Old Testament, remembered the sins of the people every day. That's the point, isn't it? So every day, those priests functioned in the tabernacle and then the temple, sacrifice day by day, right? So if you got polluted, you went to the priest and they offered a sacrifice for you, right? Uh, If you sinned, you brought a lamb and offered a sacrifice, the priest would offer that for you. God remembered sins over and over and over again. The Day of Atonement. Once a year, right? The priest takes off his clothes, offers sins for himself because he's a sinner. (laughs) And then he offers the sins lambs for the nation's sin and so on and just think right you come out of that holy of holies and you come out of the tabernacle system and the temple and so on you think oh god has forgiven our sins and then you sin <laughs> you think okay we've got to wait till next year right? that's the point right over and over and over and over again god remembered their sins but there's a promise coming here how would the old testament person have thought of this they would put it in the categories of the old testament wouldn't they God is saying, I'm going to do something so stupendous, so glorious, so amazing, that in the future, in a new covenant, I'm not going to remember any of your sins. Now, does that mean that God suddenly has amnesia? No. The only what it means right, is that it's not that God forgets. he somehow lost his knowledge. It means that something is going to happen Someone is going to do something so great that sin is now paid for in full. That's the point. There's coming a day when there's going to be a gift. It'll be a greater priest. It'll be a greater son. It'll be a greater king. And of course, it's all the Lord Jesus who will do in his life and his death and his resurrection and his going to the right hand of God and ultimately pouring out of the Spirit, the work that he does will bring about such forgiveness of sins that God says, it's done. It's finished. I don't remember them anymore. That in him and him alone, you have a right, just standing. And this is at the heart of the Reformation. This is at the heart of the Bible. Right? Salvation, justification, is not you becoming more righteous. Now, no doubt Right? in our growth in grace and so on, right? we become conformed to holiness. But that doesn't give us a standing before the holy just God of the universe. Right? His work is our standing. His life and death and resurrection is mine. That's why there has to be a directness of relationship between the believer and Christ. It's not mediated through anyone. You go to him alone and you say, your work is my work. Your life. Your death, your as I can't have anything to make me right with you. It's you and you alone. And that's at the heart of the new covenant. I'll forgive their wickedness. I'll remember their sins no more. This is really justification, right? God says, you are just. How can we be just? We still sin. (laughs) Because Jesus paid it all. He lived my life. He paid for my sin. And in him, I am now complete, right? That's why also in the Reformation, and the Roman Catholic side, there's no assurance of salvation. There was no hope that in this life, did I do enough? (laughs) That's why there was the whole teaching of purgatory. Well, even after this life, maybe you need to be purged of your sin. The Bible says, no, no, no. There's one sacrifice, once for all time, and that's it. And by faith in Christ alone, by Christ alone, by grace alone, He's my Savior. My sin is paid for. I am complete in Him. That's why in Romans 8, even now, by faith in Jesus Christ, we now know there's no condemnation before God. Right? That we will stand before God in the judgment. But even now, you can know by faith in the Lord Jesus, you can know I am right with God. If I die now, I stand righteous before Him because of Jesus, not because of me. That's the message of this point here of the new covenant. And of course, in verses 10 through 11, the flip side is, we went to the heart of it in verse 12, I'll forgive their wickedness. At the heart of the new covenant is the new covenant priest, is the new covenant redeemer who brings about the full forgiveness of sins. And that's no small thing in the Bible. But what does he then do for us, right? Well, in faith union with him, in relationship to him, in covenant relationship with him, he transforms us, doesn't he? He puts the laws in our minds. He writes them on our hearts. No longer will a man teach his neighbor, man his brother, saying, "Know the Lord." I mean, in the Old Testament, you had to go through prophets and priests and kings and so on. Now we come to the one Savior, who's the great prophet, who's the great priest, who's the great king, and we now have by the Spirit of God part of the new covenant. Right is the pouring out of the Spirit, the transformation of heart. This is not any kind of religion that's mediated through anyone other than Jesus alone, right? And that lesson has to come true to us, right? We still live, even in our evangelical churches, right? We live even in this country, right? We live with people who grew up in Christian homes, and they think they're Christians because they had Christian parents. They think they're Christians because they went to church, or they think they're Christians because they got baptized or something like that, right? It doesn't make you a christian what makes you a christian is you repent of your sins you say before god i cannot save myself he alone you must provide you alone must save and we come directly that's why we speak of a personal relationship with the lord jesus that's not wrong right? we come directly to the lord jesus and say you're my hope you're my savior you're my Lord, right? That's why He is both Savior and Lord for His people that we then come personally to Him and we don't get mediated through any church or any person or any pastor or any parent. We then have transformation of heart and life. We're forgiven of our sins. We grow in grace and so on. Yet He is the one that my standing is in. Now that's Reformation teaching, right? That's Bible's teaching, right? That's gospel teaching. And that is ultimately the hope <laughs> of the gospel that we give to people that we need to be reminded of, right? So we need to learn on Reformation Sunday lessons from the past, but more importantly, lessons from the past because they're true to the Bible, right? They're true to Scripture. God alone, Christ alone, our only hope is found in the provision of the Redeemer. He did everything for us, right? And I wonder today whether that's our hope. Whether we can say on October 31st, 2021, 504 years after the Reformation, say, yeah, what the Bible says in terms of Christ alone, he's my Lord. He's my Savior. He's the one that I know personally, directly, that my heart has been changed, that my faith is in him alone. I bring nothing to the table, but I find in him everything I need, and he is my Lord glory, right? He is the one I seek to serve and honor. That's what we should be learning from today, right? That is the great lessons that scripture uh, brings upon us and what we should be then thinking how God brought back in history, right? Uh, and recaptured some of these great truths. And may it be true of us, right? That we know God alone through his son, the Lord Jesus, and find in him our all and all, right? He alone can save us. Well, let's pray as we ask the Lord to drive these troops home to our life.